0: Father, it's with great joy that we've gathered today, and uh, what an encouraging thing it is to just be with our church family, to sing together, to remind ourselves of our great salvation in Christ, to remind ourselves that we're a reconciled people, and for that we are grateful. Father, this morning we want to say thank you for your word and how you've uh, just uh, revealed yourself to us in this special way of revelation giving us specifics, revealing Yourself to us, instructing us in holy living. Father, use this time well within us. Help us to quiet our hearts, help us to clear our minds, help us to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and allowing Him to work in us as He sees fit. It's in Jesus' name that we've gathered, it's in Jesus' name that we pray, in Jesus' name that we preach. Amen. Well, uh, did you know that um, if you carry an acorn with you, you will have continued good luck for a long life? How many of you knew that? Good news today. Just get you an acorn, put it in your pocket, and uh, you'll have good luck in a long life. How about this? Some of you enjoy farming, and you might even have some calves or some sheep. If the first baby calf born in the winter is white, it's a sign that the winter will be very harsh. So no white calves born yet this fall, I guess. Ears. Did you know that if your right ear itches, someone is saying something nice about you? And if it's the left ear that's itching, someone is saying something bad about you. Um, Did you know that It's still said that if your nose itches, a fool is about to kiss you. (laughs) How about leaves as they fall in the fall? If you catch a falling leaf on the first day of fall, so you have to wait till next year, you will not get sick that whole winter. Back to our nose. If your nose itches, you will soon get a visitor. If it's the right nostril... It indicates a female visitor. And if it's the left nostril, it indicates a male visitor. What what do we call these? Old wives' tales. I know that we have some old women in our audience today. We're not going to define who that is. And I don't want you to get your feelings hurt today, but I need to warn you that the Apostle Paul is going to talk about old wives' tales in our passage today. As we turn back to 1 Timothy, what you need to understand is he's not really talking about these kinds of old wives' tales. He's being a bit cynical, and if you'll recall the last time we were in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he was trying to straighten out some false doctrine that those apostates, the heretics in the church, had begun to introduce... And he was kind of being cynical and slamming them by saying the very things that they teach are as meaningless as these old wives' tales. Well, that's utter nonsense, isn't it? Your left nostril, your right nostril, an acorn in your pocket, it's all hogwash. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul wants to communicate in this passage. That when it comes to some of the false doctrine that had been introduced in the church, it was nothing More significant than old wives' tales. Let's read our text. And I actually want to answer a couple of questions that I realized remained unanswered after we were here the last time on this section in chapter 4 as we work our way through 1 Timothy, chapter 4. This is called a pastoral epistle because Timothy was a pastor and the Apostle Paul was writing to instruct him on some things that needed to happen in the church What we're getting at today, and we're going to go through verse 8 for our text today, and this is part one of a word that Paul's going to give Timothy that he is to himself personally, and we will realize that it is a task all of us need to take seriously, and it is that of pursuing godliness, that we would pursue godliness. What is that? What does it mean? I want to begin by reading right away at the beginning of the chapter, chapter four, and begin with verse one, and then we'll answer a few questions that I felt I didn't answer effectively in our te- in our message a couple weeks ago, and uh, then we'll read on through verse eight. Here we go. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. And teachings of demons. Let's just stop right there and answer a couple questions that uh, I realized were maybe not answered as effectively as they should have been. Uh, One is this matter of demons coming to church or Satan being in the church. Uh, The idea here that Paul's talking about is that there were leaders in the church probably Sunday school teachers or spiritual leaders in the eldership who, who had turned away from a pure doctrine that he's going to remind Timothy in our text today that he should just stick with what he's been taught and what he continues to study. But these teachers were teaching things that were turning people away from a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. And the Apostle Paul is calling that the doctrine of demons, Specifically, they were, they were saying that you could get more spiritual in, we'll read it in just a minute, remind ourselves that by not eating certain foods or by abstaining from marriage, that is denying themselves certain pleasures that we enjoy in this earth that were created by God, Paul says, for our enjoyment, that they were teaching an ascetic teaching that if you denied yourself these things, that you were somehow more spiritual. And that's what the Apostle Paul is referencing later when he says old wives' tales. That stuff that they're teaching, it's about as meaningful as carrying an acorn in your pocket for good luck. It's utter nonsense. But I wanted to address this thing of demons in the church. Because one of the questions that came to me was, okay, are those teachers demon-possessed? And the answer is, I think, maybe. It's possible that they could actually be demon-possessed, but not necessarily. I think that they could have... Turned away from a pure and sincere doctrine in the church. And I believe these these people are apostates. That means a falling away. The idea was that they knew it. And in so being a part of something that was not true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And was introducing false teaching in the church. They had literally become tools in the hand of the devil. So... Satan is the prince of the power of the air, he's the god of this world, and his agenda is always to turn us away from a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. And so, it, I think it's possible that they could have been demon-possessed, but I don't think that it was necessarily probable, and I don't think that Satan probably comes to our church. Alright? Um, Satan is not omniscient, he's not omnipotent, and I'm guessing that he probably, I'm talking about like the literal fact that like, Right about here, Satan's kind of just hovering this morning. I doubt it. I doubt it. It is possible, I think. It is possible. Um, but I think that we're probably too unimportant. We are small fries. And I would say that it's likely that Satan, as he oversees his, his this dominion of darkness and this world system... Uh, the Scripture gives us clues that that it's an organized world of darkness. Um, that there are uh, schemes and there are layers. Uh, there are um, powers in layers, levels. The Book of Daniel talks about a prince of Persia that had perhaps a geographical area that he was assigned to. There's no reason to believe that other demons couldn't be kind of assistants there. We are limited in our insight into the spirit world, but it seems to be very real. The Bible teaches it. And so the demonic forces of darkness orchestrated by Satan himself are always trying to destroy the work of Christ. Mark that down. They are anything that, that goes the way it's not supposed to. Anything that is against God's plan. And that's why even something beautiful like marriage, they will take and turn it and say, well, you're not supposed to be married, and then you've got to be more uh, spiritual in God's eyes. Or food that God gave for our enjoyment, no, don't eat that and you'll be more spiritual. Even simple things like that. He called it the doctrines of devils and as meaningless as old wives' tales. So I just wanted to say, I don't think that these people were necessarily demon-possessed, although they could have been but I think that they were part of a a system of thought as they adopted these false doctrines. The next question is, is the warning where the Spirit expressly says that they will depart. We talked about that, but I didn't answer this question. Were they Christians or were they not Christians? Were they believers or were they not believers? And I would say that the evidence of Scripture is that an apostate, somebody who turns away from the faith, is someone who turns away knowingly, and intentionally, and I would say that they were, in the words of Jesus' parable, they were seed that fell on stony ground. They gave the appearance of being followers of Christ, but they withered up, there was no root, there was no life there, and that they were never saved. John says, in First John, that they left from among us because they never were of us. And so, the answer to the question is, these, these teachers... Who are apostates in the last days, which is which we're in. We talked about that. And this turning away or falling away or this departure from the faith, this apostasy is under demonic orchestration and satanic orchestration. They are, they are willing participants, even though they don't even know it maybe all the time, that it's demons that are influencing this mindset. But I don't believe they are truly born-again people. I believe they are people who, who come to a place in their life where they just say, man, I, I don't believe this, and they start teaching things in a new way, and they believe that to be true, and they don't believe the pure gospel of Christ. I had a man in my office not too long ago, just a week ago, who proclaimed himself to be a believer for many years, and he looked, he pointed at my Bible and he said, I don't believe that anymore. Was he saved? Is he saved? Was he saved and lost his salvation? Or is he turning away? I don't know. I would say for him the verdict's still out. Sometimes, and Paul reminded Timothy later that God is faithful even when we are faithless. It's not that a believer can't get into a canyon of doubt and darkness in a time of discouragement and come out of it. So the verdict is not for us to conclude who's saved and who's not saved. God knows their hearts. But in this passage, I would say that these people are not saved and they've turned away and they've apostatized with a freedom because they're not saved and the Spirit of God is not in them. So it certainly is not, I want to make clear, believers who've lost their salvation. I do not believe the Bible teaches that. I believe that we are secure in the hand of God. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit Unto the day of redemption, Ephesians chapter 1 makes totally clear. And that sealing is something that can't be broken. It's a secure place. So let's continue reading our text, all right? Through their insincerity, verse 2, of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage. Here's the example that Paul is giving of their false teaching. "...who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth." For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. There was one other question that was uh, brought to me, and that is, okay, is it okay for me to eat just anything I want to eat all the time? You see, I think we have to be careful here. I would say that if someone tries to convince you that it's more spiritual to eat a certain way, then they've crossed a the line that the Bible doesn't allow. Okay, so here's what I'm here's where I'm going. I don't think it's okay just to eat a whole bunch of hot dogs and gorge yourself on potato chips and drink Mountain Dew and then tell your mom and dad, Paul said to Timothy, you can eat any food you want. Now, we know that food can be harmful to your body, and I think as a steward of your body, you have to take care of it. And so it's not wrong to not eat junk food or certain things. You know, or be careful in moderation so that we're stewards of our body. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. But I think what he is saying is when somebody comes to you and they open their Bible and say, did you know that back in the Garden of Eden they had this certain diet and all Christians today should be eating it? I think you're really walking on thin ice then. The Bible does not dictate a particular diet for Christians and all food, and I take that to be steak and baked potatoes with bacon chips on them <laughs> and ice cream are to be taken as a gift from God and to say, thank you, Lord. But it's not wrong if you're on a diet to not eat it, and it's not wrong to not eat things that are bad for you you are going to cause cancer in your body or something like that. Get a clue. all right? The idea here is that this was for spiritual gain. That somehow, by really wanting to eat this food, but by not eating it, I am somehow in the eyes of God more spiritual. Somehow, by wanting to marry this girl... I'm going to not marry this girl, and I'm going to be celibate, and I'm going to just grind it out, and this is all for the glory of God. And Paul says, that's nonsense. These are gifts from God, enter in and enjoy, and they're sacred things to be received from God. All right, into our text for today. If you put these things before the brothers, what things? What he's just taught. If you straighten out their false doctrine and you expose these false teachings, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And that brings us to our first point in our message today, and it is, number one, that Paul is reminding Timothy of his pastoral responsibility. Number one, Paul reminds Timothy of his pastoral responsibility, and it is, speak the truth. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Your job as a pastor, Timothy, Paul says, is to speak the truth to these people and straighten out this false doctrine. He goes on to say, being trained, that's Timothy, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. In other words... Part part B is stick to the truth. Speak the truth, letter A. Letter B, stick to the truth. So Paul is pointing out to Timothy his pastoral responsibility is to speak the truth. You will be a good servant of Christ if you speak the truth. And if you stick to the truth, this doctrine that you have studied and that you have been taught, don't deter from it. You see, Paul understands that pastors can be cowardly sometimes. Paul understands that in the latter days, he doesn't reference it here, but he will in 2 Timothy, that in the latter days, people will have what's called, the King James Version called itching ears. It doesn't mean that Somebody saying something bad about you it means that they want to hear certain things and that pastors and teachers will capitulate and will teach what people want to hear rather than stick to the truth and in Ephesus at this time it was asceticism was very popular and it had infiltrated the church and Paul knew that Timothy was being pressured by people in the church that wanted to take Christianity and following Christ and turn it into some kind of a lifestyle of denial and self-denial. And Paul says, don't do it. Speak the truth and stick to your guns. Stick to the truth. Stick to your doctrine that you know. And he's encouraging him because we have examples all the time, don't we? Of pastors and Christian leaders, quote-unquote. Even in the world of evangelicalism. Who have major platforms. And they refuse to speak what they know the Bible teaches. And I know they know. I watched one pastor of a huge church in Texas. Like 45,000 people. And he was on CNN the other day. And he was asked. What does the Bible teach about homosexuality? And he wouldn't say that it was a sin to the degree that it was condemned by God. He wouldn't speak the truth to these people. He wanted them, and it was obvious, he wanted them to, be, to like him. And basically, he denied that he, that he knew, and he said, I never teach this stuff at my church, and I really don't know about this stuff. So that's it's an example. Stick to the truth, speak the truth, and avoid the myths. Look what he says. Look at verse 7. He says, in the words of faith and of good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly Myths. That's where the old wives' tales comes in. And he's talking about this denying yourself food and denying yourself marriage. It's the same as a silly myth about your itchy nose or somebody talking about you or kissing a fool or having an acorn. This is where the ESV lets us down a little bit. It was interesting to me that the NIV, the NAS, the New King James, the Old King James, just about every translation said old wives' tales or silly myths. And so I went across the hall to Pastor Mark's office, because he knows Greek. I know Greek, too. He fixes a lunch for me once in a while. But Pastor Mark knows his Greek New Testament way better than I do. And so I said, Pastor Mark, open up your Greek text and tell me, does it say anything about old women in this passage? And he said, yeah, sure enough, it does. I double-checked him when I was at Appalachian Bible College this week, and it very clearly in, in the text there, and the ESV translators decided not to reference it in a way that it says, old women who speak silly things. And I don't think Paul's putting down old women. Paul's just using as an example the kind of old wives' tales that we all understand what that means, and saying that this is the, equi- this is the equation of that, the equal of that. It's nonsense. So Paul's first word to Timothy, Timothy is your pastoral responsibility is to speak the truth and it is to stick to the truth and it is to avoid myths. Now, let's just take one step into the second part of our message today and that is Timothy's personal responsibility. His pastoral responsibility, we understand, speak the truth, stick to the truth. His personal responsibility now he introduces this word godliness. Look what he says. Have nothing to do, verse 7 again, with irreverent, silly myths or old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself, here's the word, for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness, there it is again, is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. What is godliness? What is godliness? A few years ago, a guy named Jerry Bridges put out a book that was a follow-up to his classic book, The Pursuit of Holiness, and he wrote a book that is called The um, Practice of Godliness. Some of you are familiar with Jerry Bridges and these little books that he wrote. They're very useful. They come from Nav Press. In his book, The Practice of Godliness, Jerry Bridges defines godliness as this. It is a devotion to God a devotion to God, which results in a life that is pleasing to God. All right, so, um, when my sisters were in high school, skirts were in. It was 1968, 69, 70, 71, in that range. I had two older sisters, and my mom, we were kind of poor, my dad was a pastor of a little Bible church, and and we didn't have a lot of bought bought-in clothes. My mom made clothes. and so my mom made my sisters' skirts. So you can imagine where their skirts came on there. It, it, the, the shortest that they would let my, my, that my mom would let my sisters wear their skirts was the middle of the knee. Well, do you know back then it, when, when everybody's way up here to wear a skirt like that to school, and girls were still wearing skirts. Some of you remember that era, and you were from that era. And so, my sisters would get ready for church in the morning, put their for, for school in the morning. They went to this big public high school in the South Chicago. They would go to the bus stop, and when they got around the corner away from my mom, you know what they would do? They would roll up their skirt at the waist, and then figure out a way to wear their blouse. Now, they were pleasing my mom, but it wasn't of, They and See, they weren't for real, were they? They were playing games. They would leave the house with their skirts where it belonged. We're pleasing mom. We're all good. See, we can't do our Christianity like that. We can't just posture like it's okay, and then sometimes we're going to do this. This is a, a life not pleasing to God only when he's watching, kind of like my sister's only pleasing to my mom and my dad when they're watching, living by the letter of the law. This godliness is right living, obedient living, that springs from a heart that truly loves God. A heart that is... Broken over sinfulness that recognizes that God our Father loves us. He's given us instruction how to live. And we hate sin. We fear God. And we've grown in our love for God. And out of our devotion, this, this love and commitment to God, this kind of devotion, we want to live in right manner. Nobody has to make a list for us. Nobody has to push us. We are in the pursuit of figuring out what pleases God. So that we can do like Paul said at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1, where he said, you you must live in a lifestyle that pleases God. There is a such way of Christian living. Isn't that interesting? But it's not a Christian living so that I can somehow on the outside impress God. No, we know from the Old Testament, when God was looking for a king in Israel, that God looks on the... Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And so this kind of godliness that Paul's talking about and that we've used Jerry Bridges' definition, this devotion to God which results in a life that is pleasing to God comes from a heart broken over sin, a heart that fears God, a heart that loves God, and a heart that is given over to obedience. My relationship with God is such that it shows in how I live. You know people like that, don't you? You've seen people who've walked with God, You've seen people who love the Lord, and there's something about them you just know. That is a godly person, is how we'll say it. And those kind of people, if you heard something about them that was bad, you know what you would say? It's not true. I know that person. They're a godly person. They would never do that. It's interesting, isn't it? Let's just look up one text today and then next week we're going to have to pick it up and we will build, um, on, uh, what, it, what it means to live a godly life and what the New Testament defines as a godly life. But would you turn right now to Titus and go to chapter two and let's just conclude with this part of, the, of the passage. This is, I want you to, as you turn to Titus, let me just remind you that a couple of things that Paul is saying here, he says he'd rather train yourself to be godly. I want you to notice, number one, that Paul is saying that it is a personal responsibility. You are to be involved in training yourself in godliness. The second thing I want to remind you of is something that's very familiar from this passage, and that is that the word that's translated in our ESV Bible, train yourself, comes from a Greek word that, that we get our English word, gymnasium, from which we get our English word, gymnasium. It's the idea of working out, getting rid of all excesses. It actually comes from a Greek root word that means naked. And the idea was that in the Greek culture, when the young men were at a certain age of about between 15 and 19, that they were committed to this time of working out to strengthen their body, and they, it was a known fact that they worked out naked to free themselves up from all hindrance and to focus on the workout and to build their make their bodies just as strong as possible. Out of that word, we get the word gymnasium. It's a word that smells like sweat. It's a word that has the idea of a certain sound to it, a certain place you go to build strength. And that if you avoid it, you don't build that strength. I think that Paul is... Speaking of it, in contrast with the asceticism, but yet there is a level of personal responsibility to control the body. He's not talking about an asceticism. And I think he's also using it, as he often did, using sports analogy. Paul often used the athletic analogy of his day, paralleling it to the Christian life. And he's saying, get down to the gym it profits a little. You'll notice that. We'll emphasize that next week more. It profits a little. There, it's not, I'm not saying don't work out at the gym. It does profit your body. But you need to pursue godliness because it will benefit you for all of this life and the life to come. It's the priority. Pursue godliness. Godliness is something that is to characterize all believers in the Lord Christ. And that's Titus chapter 2 verses 11 and 12. Let's look at this and then we'll go home. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Okay? It doesn't mean that all people are saved. It means that the grace of God is available to all people and that this great salvation is available to all people. All people everywhere on the planet can be saved. Okay? From our vantage point and anything the Bible tells us, anybody who wants to be can be saved. Okay? And God has brought this salvation through Christ. Training us, this salvation, when we enter into it, verse 12, it teaches us or trains us to do what? Our salvation teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives when? In heaven future? In this present age or world. Listen to me closely right now. There is no such Christian in our New Testament that comes to the cross of Christ, admitting their sinfulness, acknowledging that they have a Savior in Jesus Christ, like we did at the table today, that they needed a righteousness that they did not have of their own, they acknowledge their sinfulness, they receive the forgiveness that is in Christ, and a righteousness that is not their own, that makes them acceptable in the sight of a holy God, and then they stick that ticket of salvation in their pocket, and they go off and they live any old way they want to live. There's no Christian like that in the New Testament. There's only Christians who are new creations in Christ... This salvation that we've entered into, it doesn't give us any other permission than to renounce ungodliness and to move on in godliness. We are to be identified, once we enter into our salvation, with a godly life. Do you see it there? This salvation teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Jim Shoopy sitting over here used to be on the faculty of Washington Bible College for many years. And one of his counterparts is for many, many years now, the associate pastor at Independent Bible Church, Kurt Lowry. When Jim Shoopy was the, dean of, the academic dean, Kurt Lowry was the dean of students for a while. And Kurt Lowry always told me that they would talk, and they talked about Washington Bible College, everything the world has in Jesus too. That's not a very good promotion for WBC today, but it's like that anywhere, isn't it? What about our church? What about your home? Is it everything the world has in Jesus too? Is that how you look at your salvation? Everything the world has in Jesus too. The pendulum of grace has swung over there. You know that? That it is popular in our era of Christianity that everything goes. I'm telling you, everything doesn't go. Next week we'll break it down a little bit more on what this looks like in our lives. But my challenge to you today is this. If you have entered into this great salvation, have you seen a change in your life? If you don't see a change in your life, you need to examine your heart, whether or not you're really saved. Are you pursuing godliness in any way? Janet and I are members at the Shepherd University Wellness Center. It's kind of expensive. It's a great place to work out. It really doesn't take us that long to get there, and we try to work out three times a week. You know, lately it's been one time a week, and then some weeks we've skipped, and it makes me really upset. Partly because we paid money for it, and partly because... I'm falling apart and I feel a lot better when they work out consistently. Can I tell you that most weeks, even as your pastor, I have to admit to you that I'm more concerned about my physical workout than I am growing in godliness. And Paul says, pursue godliness. Bodily exercise only profits a little. Where are you on the spectrum of pursuing godliness? You've entered into this salvation. Have you allowed that salvation to grow you and to teach you that we would walk in a godly life in this present age? We'll stop right there for today. And I trust that you'll come with a ten of years next week as we plunge into this topic at a deeper level of godliness. Father, thank you for this uh, instruction that we've entered into. We do want to know the truth. We want to live the truth. And we want the truth to highly impact our lives. And we want the truth to be making us, carving us, conforming us into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be careful, recognizing that it's easy to detour from the truth and to enter into things that are of the value of an old wives' tale. So, Lord, would you... Help us to examine our hearts. Help us to surrender ourselves at a renewed level to Jesus. Letting our great salvation work in us so that we would indeed have an identity of godliness in our lives in this present age. Father, we recognize that this world presses in upon us. In many ways, the sinful aspects of the world can be so attractive and so desirable to our flesh. So would you work in the hearts of our young people and our adults and our children and help us, Lord, to have a great joy and devotion to you out of which springs a pure and godly life. Teach us these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.